0: Good afternoon. My name is Brian Topher, Principal Architect of Topher Architecture, and you are listening to New Books Architecture, a podcast channel in the New Books Network dedicated to architecture and its publications. If you have any suggestions on authors who you would love to hear me speak with next, feel free to send me an email at btofer@toferarchitecture.com. at topherarchitecture.com. Today's guest is Doug Kelbot to talk about his book, The Urban Fix, Resilient Cities and the War Against Climate Change, Heat Islands and Overpopulation. Doug is an affiliate professor of architecture and urban planning at the University of Washington in Seattle, as well as a fellow of the American Institute of Architects and the Congress of New Urbanism. Doug, thank you very much for being here and talking with me today, and welcome to the show. Thank you. So, before we begin, can you tell the audience a little bit more about yourself?
1: Okay. Well, I've uh, since graduating from Princeton University with an undergrad and grad degree, I was an architect primarily initially with an office in Princeton, New Jersey. Then I moved to Seattle to be chair of the architecture department and slowly became more of an academic, less of a practitioner, then Dean at the college of architecture and urban planning, university of Michigan. Then I retired about three weeks ago and, uh, from Michigan and now I've moved back to Seattle where I have family. Um, written a number of books, edited a number of books over the years, spoken, oh my God, to 70 schools of architecture and hundreds of conferences online and in person. And uh, what else is of relevance? Um, I designed a lot of buildings, including ones that won about 20 design awards, competitions, etc. but not so much recently. I'm mainly a writer now including this book you already announced um, that's probably enough uh, uh,
0: very very interesting. And so yeah so we'll just jump right in then and so we're at I know the book is actually very positive for kind of the subject matter but I do want to kind of highlight a somewhat harrowing statistic and that is you mentioned in 1987 you know fossil fuel usage made up about 81 percent of the of the consuming. And then thirty years later, it hasn't changed. It's still at eighty-one percent, and so that's a somewhat dismal statistic, in my opinion. And so, you know, I was wondering if you could elaborate. No, that was in twenty seventeen. Yeah. It's only been three years. Has there been any improvement, or are we still in that same?
1: No, uh, it's about the same. So in a third of a century, we really haven't cut fossil fuel usage. Part of that's because of population increase, which we'll talk about. I'm sure during the course of this conversation um, but you know despite the increase in renewables there's still just a lot of fossil fuel fuel use for instance air conditioning is still growing like mad all over the planet that uses electricity which is usually produced by fossil fuels we are way down in coal use for the production of electricity that is good news far less coal but still lots of and, and less less oil but still lots of natural gas um renewables are growing as their costs come down but and they are making an impact a significant impact but it's a it's a long hard road ahead
0: absolutely and so now we can kind of talk about where you kind of what you present and kind of the outline of how we'll probably follow this as well as the book you present these four dots the first three being challenges and then the fourth being something that was seen as a challenge but you propose is actually part of the solution Those, you know, the first three being climate change, urban heat islands, and unsustainable population group. But what's interesting is the fourth is the idea of the city itself, which I think in a lot of people's mind, have a negative view of cities, whereas you explain that they're actually the the solution, not the problem.
1: Right. Well, dots is an understatement. I I use it only to use the phrase connecting the dots, because we have to connect all four of these. Um. The first one, climate change, by far the biggest challenge ever to face humanity. The planet has seen bigger challenges, but not human civilization. Um, Much bigger deal than any plague we've ever had or whatever. Um, The urban heat islands, we'll talk about in detail, I'm sure later, that's a local phenomenon as opposed to climate change, which is global. Population growth, as you know, the planet's still growing, although, birth rates are dropping dramatically, but that takes a while to have its impact. But your final point, which is a major point of the book, is that the city is our last best hope for lots of problems, including climate change. They are positive. And why, in a nutshell, when people move to cities, their eco footprint, their energy footprint, their carbon footprint goes down. I can explain why now or later, but overall, the impact is positive.
0: Absolutely. Now would be, be, be a great time because, you know, I know it's part of the quote unquote American dream, you know, moving to a nice large house in the suburbs. And the reality is those suburbs are doing way more damage than the city. And I think a lot of people would be interested to hear why is
1: that? Yeah, I mean, suburbs are much worse. You live in single family houses with lots of wall surfaces and windows to to lose heat, which makes heating uh, more expensive and even air conditioning more expensive in the summer. Mm -hmm. You drive a lot more. You own more cars. There's more paving um, per capita, uh, more rooftop, more you name it. It's just very excessive. It's an American invention that, unfortunately, we've exported all over the world, many... (laughs) Countries have actually been copying it, but you know, now the smarter developing countries are looking to Europe rather than America for the model, uh-huh. Europe being much more urban. So, anyway, why are cities better? Well, when you move to a city, A, you live in a smaller unit. Often it shares a wall, a floor, or a ceiling with other units if you're in multifamily housing or if you're in a townhouse. Uh, you own fewer cars, you drive less because you walk more, you bike more. I hardly drive at all here in Seattle. I either bike or walk or take my e bike. I'll be going later this afternoon to the grocery goodness. store with my e bike. So, transportation is less, you know, more transit, although bus just passed the window. Unfortunately, more and more buses are empty because of the pandemic, but that's temporary. Mm-hmm. So, transportation. Energy use is less. Heating, cooling, lighting is less. Actually lighting could sometimes be higher, but generally utility costs are less um, and less carbon production. Uh, this transportation, how you build, where you live, um, how you live uh, are all positive. I mean, and the other news is you have fewer kids when you live in the city which deals with that third problem, population growth.
0: Absolutely, and before we kind of maybe segue into those other ones, you know, you had mentioned that we have a long road. It is the toughest battle, and I know when you speak to a lot of people, there has been, as you mentioned, you know, renewables. There has been a lot of good news and improvements, but kind of the reality. And I'll use a quote right from the book. You know, even if carbon was completely removed tomorrow, we have still done enough damage that it's not. It's not enough. We actually have to adapt as well.
1: Absolutely. In fact, we cannot um, reverse climate change. We can't even stop it, but we can slow it down. I mean, there's so much carbon up there already baked into the system is a lot of climate change. It's going to get a lot hotter. Our kids and our grandkids are going to live very challenging lives. My generation, I'm 75, will do fine. (laughs) But it's it's definitely... It's baked in. It's it's not reversible, uh, but that doesn't mean we can't slow it down. And how do we slow it down? By changing our personal behavior, personal behaviors, and our and our collective behavior. By you know, driving less, eating local food more, living in smaller units, flying less. I read this morning that there are people flying airplanes. That take off and land in the same airport because they're addicted to flying. And some airlines are.
0: I was not aware of that.
1: Accommodating that. Yeah, it's shocking. I literally just learned that this morning. (laughs) Um, So we got to change our personal lifestyles and collective. We have to change. Americans have by far the biggest carbon or eco or, Mm or. environmental footprint on the planet, with the exception of maybe Dubai, which I lived in for a couple of years. We can talk about that if you want. Absolutely. But but it's very, very high. And uh, Europeans who live very well, I think as well and better than we do, have, well, I don't know, eco footprints about 40% the size of our, no, 40% less and getting better at a faster rate because not only of renewables, but, you know, better transportation systems, more walkable lifestyles, et cetera.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, you had kind of hinted at this before. And so the benefits of living in the city in terms of your eco footprint, you know, there's plenty. You went into detail on a few. But that does kind of leave something that the cities then have to, they dealt with, and that is your second point and part of all this connecting of the dots, and that is the urban heat island effect. You know, if you could elaborate a little more, maybe some of the viewers who might not be familiar with
1: that. cities are getting hotter much faster than their suburbs or their rural countryside. Um, Mainly because of a lot more heat coming out of tailpipes and um, chimneys, which tend to be more urban than rural. Um, But also because there's a lot of paving and a lot of dark roofs, both of which absorb solar radiation and then radiate heat back to the local climate local. So cities are, you know, 10, 12, 15 degrees hotter than their rural hinterland. Uh, It's really a problem because we want people to live in cities for reasons I just explained. Mm -hmm. And the hotter they get, you know, it discourages some people from moving there. But... uh, there are ways to deal with the urban heat island we'll talk about I'm sure
0: absolutely um, and you, when i read this you know as an architect whenever i read on this subject there's a lot of policy issues and politics and you know as an architect it's a little overwhelming cuz you know what is the answer whereas when it comes to urban heat island you know there is a very much an architectural response and that you know you yeah, no, actually, being great.
1: Actually, that's a good point you make it is more available to us as architects and planners urban designers um, <clears throat> Well, there's dealing with so-called urban canyons. Uh, You know, the taller the buildings, the narrower the street, the more heat that's collected uh, within that canyon. And we can widen the streets and shorten the buildings. We can have lighter colored surfaces on the building, which bounces more light back out of the canyon, as well as lighter colored pavements, both walking Mm -hmm. and driving. Um, So... Those are design issues, but, you know, obviously designing buildings to be more efficient is something we need to do. Um, and that Absolutely. affects climate change, not just here, uh, urban heat island. Um, so we can plant more trees. We'll talk a lot about trees, I'm sure. They're really important. Um, design better transit systems. Absolutely. With uh, planners
0: you you mentioned urban canyons and you know every whenever i read the books i always talk about it with other people and i know the idea that urban canyons are kind of detrimental it seems to actually throw a lot of people i think the mentality most people associate shade with cooler yeah the rea- but you know you kind of mentioned that the reality is when you have these urban canyons forced by tall buildings on both ends yeah, yeah. there might be shade there but that's actually a very warm unpleasant space
1: right we can of course give up um buildings say the height of Paris, Paris is a great example, sort of seven, eight story buildings can work if the streets are reasonably wide. Ideally the boulevard or streets about as wide as the buildings are high, a one to one ratio. Um, but, and we'll we'll have cities with higher buildings for sure. Uh, there'll be some heat islands, but not if the street walls aren't continuous. If the, if the high rises pop up, um, they, they can be set back from the street wall, the higher parts of buildings as they do in Vancouver. Um, but the high-rises don't all have to line up along the street. I mean, they can not only be set back, but they can be interspersed. They don't have to be on every building. So high-rises, there's a place for high-rises. It's just in the center of the block and not every block. Right. Um, so... That's good news because we, we want density for all the reasons I talked about. Um, what was the other part of the question?
0: Uh, just the, so not only, you know, so the air, you know, those urban canyons, they're unpleasant, <laughs> but there is almost the financial benefit as well. I, th- I think you quote that, you know, Florida spends $400 million in additional air conditioning costs just because of these, these canyons created.
1: Well, yeah, and it's even worse in places like India, which is, Adding air conditioning so fast, you can't believe it. In fact, um, these air conditioners, I have a, slide, a famous slide of Singapore, which is just five, six-story, seven-story buildings with air conditioners popping out of every unit. And right. all that cool air that's pumped into buildings means hot air is pumped into the streets. The right. street canines get even hotter because of air conditioners. So air conditioning... It's a bit of a problem. Natural ventilation using fans is infinitely more efficient in terms of energy consumption than air conditioning. Air conditioning is not only a problem because of all the electricity to run it, but the refrigerants, the chemistry Mm -hmm. of air conditioners are dangerous. In fact, leaking chemicals out of air conditioners is arguably the single biggest cause of climate change right now. Um, absolutely, yeah it's, the air conditioning is a nasty system. I'm happy to say, although we have heat pumps in our house, we hardly ever use air conditioning. We bought a bunch of fans, they work just fine now it's not that hot in Seattle. Those of you who live in in hotter parts of the u s may have to use air conditioning part of the year, but more shade on your house we'll talk about shade trees oh. um and more natural ventilation more fans can get you through most of the cooling season uh, absolutely and that you can cut kind of- air conditioning uh in hot humid places uh considerably by using these other techniques and in hot arid places uh it's even easier to deal um with heat in the summer
0: Absolutely, and that kind of puts the, the impetus back on the architects and planners. You know, As easy as it is to rely and throw money at nicer mechanical systems, orientation and natural strategies need to be part of the initial discussion.
1: Absolutely. As you know, you they actually... have been for many, many years. <laughs> I mean, that's the way traditionally buildings were cooled um, mm. with natural ventilation, including very clever courtyard schemes where air is brought in low and then it goes up and out the courtyard and ventilates the whole building.
0: Absolutely. And you had, you specifically mentioned Indio and that, like to use this as a segue, you, you have a, a very great picture in the book about with all the, with all the inclusions of these new air conditioning systems, you know, some of the pavement is literally melting in those camps. That's right. And
1: yeah. That kind of, oh, yeah. Sorry, no, no, you keep going.
0: And that, uh, that led me to think, you know, when you mentioned you know buildings are getting taller, density is increasing, it's not being thought out. Well, the first thing that came to my mind was kind of the city most architects are familiar with, Dubai, and you had mentioned you had lived there. Yeah, I mean, can you maybe give us? I know you can't explain your entire time well, there, but it
1: can- was a weird job. I after I stepped down as dean, I was a bit of lost what to do and. In- my former partner and good friend, Peter Calthorpe was doing work in Dubai and said, you want to go to, to Dubai? I said, are you kidding, Dubai? No way. But I went over <laughs> and we were staying and we we didn't enjoy the first year much, but the second year we did. And it's totally crazy. Uh, more towers and cranes uh, than You're anything right. on the planet building high-rises, many of which are not occupied. They're simply investments for wealthy Muslims from all over the Muslim world who don't trust their banks and how they invest their capital. They put it in high rises and they like to do in Dubai because it's pretty stable, relatively speaking, very stable in the middle East. And so all these towers, a lot of them are empty and never will be filled. They're just sitting there. Right. Yeah. As, as sort of, um, ways to store, um, capital, um, and it's totally auto dependent. Nobody walks. We used to mm-hmm. bike a bit, and we were the only people biking. It's very hot, of course. So there's a <laughs> lot of air conditioning, and it's humid. It's it gets arid 40, 50 miles inland, but it's on the coast there. It's very humid, so a lot of a a lot of air conditioning and a lot of desalinated water. All the water is desalinated out of the really? very Persian Gulf uses an immense amount of energy and keeps pumping even saltier water back into the Persian Gulf, which makes desalination even harder. It's a totally wrong place to build a city of 2 million people, um, because of the lack of fresh water, the heat, uh, the fact that everything has to be shipped in. All the food comes in from elsewhere. They don't grow anything to speak of. Um, it's yeah. The only way to get there is by basically flying. It's uh, it's a mistake, and uh, living there underscored it for me. Um, not a lot of trees, although they are doing the best to plant trees. Um, it's it's an example of how how not to do it.
0: That's a very interesting insight. I don't think, at least me personally, I don't think that image of empty towers is what's projected. I think a much more yeah, positive well,
1: image A lot of towers are occupied, but a lot of them are not, or they're occupied partially. Right. Um, maybe the lower stories. I'm not even sure they fully finish the upper stories. But, um, yeah, most people don't realize that. They also don't realize that there's no sewer system. No, and really. that all those <laughs> towers, including the tallest building in the world... Have their sewer uh, sewage driven by giant tanker trucks out to a dump, where they Thanks. line up for miles, waiting to dump their sewage. Uh, there's no sewage system. It's just a, in many ways, a very crude city. Um, again, getting it wrong on so many levels.
0: Absolutely, I wasn't aware of that either.
1: It is a big tourist center. They make their money. It's a big airport. It's a big. Mm-hmm or a big seaport and a big tourist city. And it's a financial, because it's more stable, it's a financial center for the Middle East. So it keeps going. I went back a couple of years ago and there's still towers. There's still building. Uh, It's still, even though there's a big setback after the, what was it? The Arab spring or whatever it was called. And the economy was set back pretty bad. Uh, after 2009 and then later in the Arab spring. So, but it's, I was surprised how well it's doing. I was really surprised how well, I mean, how how economically robust it is despite all these handicaps.
0: Absolutely. And so, you know, Dubai has plenty of issues that you've done a great great job detailing of, of things that could be done better. I think one that comes to mind and that we go into much more detail in the book is the idea of, you know, sprawl i know you said you used your book your bike but i can't imagine many others are using their bikes
1: well actually in seattle there's a lot of biking is that right uh, there are a lot of bike even though it's hilly there are a lot of sort of bike paths and trails and i bike a lot and uh they're jammed in fact uh, on the weekends i wouldn't even go on the major east west trail there's too many people and with covid it's you know it's not so cool but um a lot of biking here a lot of biking in ann arbor the two cities i know most mm-hmm. from recent residents and um i i don't know probably not in rochester it's pretty cold there but i know i think some people on this listen to this live in cities where bikings on the upsurge in fact it was hard to buy bikes now for a while
0: well and you had mentioned that you know, of all the benefits of living in a city and how it lowers your eco footprint. One idea, you know, and I don't have the exact number, but you, you state that people are willing to walk much further or bike in a city versus a low density area, like a suburb. Yeah, it doesn't they, matter.
1: They bike further and more frequently and, and do errands on bikes. I'm now when it's grocery shopping, as I said, I need an, an e-bike because a, it happens to be a hilly trip there and back. But B, I can't carry food on my on my street or road bike of any significance. Um, so it's good to have an e-bike, much, much more efficient than an automobile. They're bi- e-bikes are big here in Seattle because it's hilly, and they make e-bikes here. Um, I recommend them. Do uh, you see e-bikes in Rochester?
0: You know, I personally do not.
1: Hey, I, won't say that. I won't say maybe. that they're
0: not out there, but...
1: <laughs> well, it's colder. That's part of the problem. Even today, it'll be a little chilly on my bike here in Seattle. But um, um, it's—I've lost track. Uh, Where are we talking? Trams? Suburbs? Or you know? Absolutely,
0: the idea that you know—it's maybe it's not a strict architectural intervention, more maybe of a planning. But the idea that we have to have a much better—you know—transit-oriented design. We need to focus more on. In fact, I'll take a quote right out of the book you had mentioned that. You know, we need to focus on lowering our travel time, but we need to do it by increasing our network, not by increasing our speed of travel.
1: Right, right. Shorter trips and you have a much more complex network in the city. As Jane Jacobs wrote years ago in The Mm -hmm. Life and Death of Great American City, she talked about shorter blocks and more walkability and better transit way back 50 years ago now almost. The um, first book, anyway. So, I um, the ideas have gained real traction all over the world. People now realize. I
0: agree.
1: These benefits.
0: And so, kind of the the other side of that double edged sword. You know, you had, you you do actually make a good case on how you know this transit oriented design is it's picking up steam. It's not a very industry specific. Other people are kind of picking it up now but there's kind of this technological advance on the horizon that I hear about every day and that you I'd like to elaborate a little more. And the idea of driverless automatic cars.
1: Yeah. Um, let's talk about that. Cause I am uh, living in Ann Arbor near Detroit and at a big research university, which is really the center of research for autonomous vehicles. Mm-hmm. I know a little bit about them and I can tell you they're a little further off than anybody realizes. Is that right? Uh, yeah. They, Except in dedicated lanes. We're going to see dedicated lanes. With autonomous vehicles, particularly collective ones, little vans and bigger buses and whether they're linked together or separate and some are going to be express and some more local and so on. We're going to see autonomous vehicles as large as buses, as small as little taxis, where you have a dedicated lane, dedicated curb space where you get in and out of them, so it's highly organized in linear cities like the one Peter Calthorpe's planning from uh, San Francisco down to San Jose. Very good project showing how this is all linked together. But uh, autonomous vehicles on the open road is going to be a long time. They, they, they can get about 80%, 90% of the problems solved, but that last 10%, you know, the straight dog that runs out in front of your car and all that. They can't deal with that stuff. So I wouldn't hold your breath on autonomous vehicles in sprawl, but you will see more and more in corridors, which are, of course, urban corridors. Um, Although the urban corridor from San Francisco to San Jose goes through, you know, Palo Alto and, and less dense areas that he's densifying along the corridor with these walkable TODs. He's the guy... Who coined the term TOD, Transit Oriented Development? Peter Calthorpe. but it was after a charrette, a design workshop we did at University of Washington, called the Pedestrian Pocket Charrette, which resulted in a little national best-selling book in urban design called the Pedestrian Pocket Book. Mm-hmm. But later, uh, Peter thought the term was a little too cute and changed to TOD. <laughs> now every planner of every city in the world knows what a TOD is. a TOD Absolutely. is.
0: Well, so that's an interesting take on the driver's car. So I guess, from my understanding, you're saying that it's it's not going to be every person has when it's more of a urban transport. Yeah,
1: no, will be collective that you won't own them. Gotcha. Unless, no, you really won't. If you do, you won't use it because it's uh, too dangerous.
0: <laughs> now, you do make the case, though, that you know if when things become more convenient, people, People might be willing, you know, people are willing to drive further, for example, because, ga- you know, gas has gotten lower, the vehicles are different. I think that actually had a term, I think you called it the, the rebound, Jevons Paradox.
1: Jevons Paradox, the rebound, but yeah, as cars get more efficient, what do people do? They tend to drive them more, you know, as miles per gallon goes up, often vehicle miles traveled goes up. Not always, but, and not in cities, but and that's a general trend. That's an economic law, not a natural law. Um, and it applies to anything where there's price involved. That's why it's an economic law. It's only because it's it's a price-sensitive issue like the cost of gasoline, but it doesn't apply to natural phenomenon, Um, at least typically it doesn't. So uh, Jevon's paradox and the rebound effect isn't as terminal as it may sound.
0: Well, that's interesting. But I guess in that same vein, you actually hinted at this earlier that, you know, when someone moves to the city, the birth rate's lower. That's, I believe you call it the population paradox. Is that the same idea of, is that a kind of a more of a natural event or more of an economic event?
1: It's more of an economic event. What happens when the rural migrants in India and China, which in massive numbers are moving to cities. When they move there, their, their wealth goes up dramatically. So their eco footprint goes up pretty fast. They have more money and they buy more things and so on. But it turns out their birth rate drops fast, fast enough that it more than compensates for really? the rise in consumption. So even in, in these fast-growing Asian cities, um, the eco footprint, Per capita, better in the city than in the countryside, where they're very poor, and they're even better in the city, mainly because they have um, fewer kids.
0: Well, and that's a very interesting point. Again, I know you know kind of central thesis is living in the city is the most beneficial for the environment. You had mentioned the idea of you know people living in the country or ports, you know, and I there's a quote from I, I might mispronounce this Yuval. Ferrari regarding, you know, even though there was this trend of people moving to the suburbs, the reality is more poor people actually live in suburbs than the cities, and yet it's actually harder to be less financially set in the suburb as it is to be in the city.
1: Yeah, this is a problem. Uh, as cities have become more popular, they've become more expensive. So, poor people have either had to move out or their offspring haven't been able to afford to stay in the city. They tend to move to these poor suburbs. It's very apparent in city in metro areas like San Francisco and New York, absolutely a lot of poor suburban areas. Very true in Detroit now, even in Detroit, African American poor African Americans <clears throat> that can afford to move out <clears throat> are having trouble moving to the better suburbs. They end up in these poor suburbs where there's a lot of social problems and unrest and even strife. So Suburbs are changing. The demographic profile of suburbs are changing. Some are right. it's going in as bifurcating. Some suburbs are getting super wealthy and some are getting very poor. It's interesting. Everything, I think suburban slums quite soon. Not just places, right? but real slums where you have, you know, discarded dishwashers and cars sitting in the front yards of these McMansions mansions that will be subdivided just like urban mansions have been, were subdivided into smaller units. You're going to see McMansions mansions subdivided, but they're not as well built as those or old urban mansions. I mean, that mm-hmm. rock is going to rot out as well as, you know, structurally they're not so sound. So I think suburban slums are en- going to end up being worse than urban slums.
0: That'd be a very stark picture, but I, I agree. I think that makes a lot of sense. I know know personally, in my practice, I've toured a lot of those larger suburb homes, and I would agree that they're not built to what they cost.
1: Yeah, not very well built. And I don't think you see many of them getting subdivided yet, but it's going to happen.
0: That point makes me think of something else, and maybe I'm taking it a little literally, but it was a very interesting case you make in the book, in, I believe, Chapter 7. The idea that for us to use our cities the most successfully it's more, we have to use it more of a shared city as opposed to a city kind of divided by everyone's ownership. I don't yeah,
1: think we're yeah, Interesting and somewhat problematic subject. Um, there's a whole chapter on the sharing city. Yeah. We need to start sharing assets where literally people share cars, uh, share vacations, homes, Airbnb is a good example. of the sharing economy. We're going to see more and more of that because we have a limited number of assets and assets are expensive and it's good to share them. I mean, lawnmowers, people are starting to share lawnmowers, even in suburbia and things like that. I think it makes complete sense. Um, Absolutely. So the sharing economy uh, is going to increase, but it's problematic because, you know, we're so in love with ownership uh, <laughs> things you know we own more than anybody on the planet per capita and so we're sort of attached i mean buddhism would be the first to say how overly attached we are to our material possessions so sharing has that hurdle to overcome and there's some legal issues with sharing that have to be dealt with um, it can get complicated legally, um, and people who get the book and can read more about some of the challenges, but some of the great opportunities and benefits and ultimately the necessity of sharing.
0: Absolutely. You know, you mentioned that there's a lot of benefits and there are some challenges, but kind of the biggest challenge isn't the implementation of it. It's just literally human nature. Same with the idea of what is the biggest challenge in using our cities effectively. I'll take a quote right from you know we are asking humans to do something unnatural to them, constrain their own growth. You know, so it's kind of that's the biggest challenge is the whole
1: mentality. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're just it's beaten into us. Growth, growth, growth. <laughs> Capitalism is all about growing, growing, growing. Mm-hmm. That's got to change. I think our capitalist system is. I don't want to get rid of it because it produces lots of good things, but I want to see it heavily reformed. And I think if we elect the right guy in two weeks, um, we're going to see some of that reform needed—the Green New Deal, etc. So anyway, I, I, uh, it. Big, big challenges ahead, which we're going to have to rise to. We've risen to challenges like this before. We'll do it again.
0: Absolutely. And so, you know, just to kind of summarize again, so I appreciate, you know, all the elaboration. And so before we kind of get into the closing, you know, I'd be curious, you know, sounds like you have a lot going on. What have you been up to since the book's been released? <laughs>
1: been out about a year and a half. Uh, I think I've done about, uh, so this might be my seventh sort of webinar, although they usually Zoom with with audio and visual. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do a lot of speaking, i teaching again, even though I just retired. Um, I'm not going to write another book. Is that but, right? That book was about If you add it all up, about 10 years in the making, it's the most heavily researched book I've ever done. The 750 footnotes tells you just how much research (laughs) went into it. Um, And it's very carefully written and I think pretty legible. I hope readers will find it. I'm usually told that my writing is, is... understandable compared to many academics anyway
0: absolutely you know i well yeah so yes i would agree i took a lot from it and even without that qualifier but when you had the qualifier of academic writing yes it's significantly
1: yeah yeah i really worked hard on it and so i'm not going to do another one of those books it's that's a very long project but i'm writing lots of articles um book chapters i still write um but I'm, you know, I'm starting to take it easy a bit. I'm doing things like jigsaw puzzles. Is that right? Well, because of COVID, you know, we're more homebound, so yes. Uh, and I'm starting to cook a little bit. Something I'm pathetically bad at. Yeah. And, Same here. Uh, there's some yard work here, and so and so I, you know, retirement is changing things. But I'll continue to write. I'm no longer really designing. My new medium of expression is writing.
0: Oh, great. Well, I guess if you ever change your mind and you write another book, hopefully can get you back on the show. I want to thank yeah. you again for taking the time to speak with me and our audience.
1: Well, it's and been a pleasure and I hope people not only listen to this, but are inclined and moved to buy the book and to read it. Um, absolutely. And, and for those, you might, you might want to advertise. I can send you an email address where you can buy the book at a discount. Um, That'd be great. I'll send that to you, and uh, you might add that in somehow because a twenty-five percent discount helps.
0: That's pretty significant, absolutely. And for those who needed the reminder,
1: maybe it's twenty percent anyway. It's a help. (laughs) Yeah.
0: The the book is the Urban Fix: Resilient Cities and the War Against Climate Change, Heat Islands, and Overpopulation. And to those of you listening, thank you, and have a great day.